Hello there, space fans. Robin here, Chief of Content, Supercluster. The episode you're about to listen to was actually re-recorded a few weeks after the original taping occurred. Ben Lamb is the CEO of Hypergiant, and we taped an episode as a preview to our collaboration that was supposed to occur at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. And due to the COVID-19 pandemic, South by Southwest was canceled and all of our panels that we were planning with Hypergiant and Spacecom were obviously canceled as well. Ben and I decided to hop on the phone, remotely of course, and tape another podcast and talk about Hypergiant and some of the cool technologies that they're working on, and just this whole situation in general. We appreciate your patience, and enjoy the show. Okay, Ben, so this is the second time you and I are doing this. We have to acknowledge the world around us, and I know that you and I have both been following stuff on Twitter. I know we're both very active. I've been following your feed and our Supercluster fans and readers and listeners have been bearing with us through this crisis and we're all doing our work remotely and we had to redo this podcast and we can talk about why. The last podcast was all about a preview for South by Southwest and the hyper giant panels that were happening at your headquarters that week. And uh, I was supposed to attend and moderate a couple of those panels. And we were planning for a really fun event. And Ben, can you just give us a recap of what happened there and what decision-making went into canceling the event? I mean, it was rough. Looking back today, we obviously made the right decision. Uh, yeah. We're all on lockdown in, in various cities. Everyone's learning to work remote. You may hear my dogs on this podcast. Who knows? <laughs> they are welcome. <laughs> yeah, uh, or my fifty Amazon. <laughs> yeah, my, my I think my wife's gonna kill me because it's just there's just so much going on. Wow. Yeah, I understand. I'm having Amazon packages delivered because I am moving this week, which is oh, wow. insane. So I'm I'm dependent on that those amazing people out there who are continuing to work. And I did groceries yesterday, and even something like that is becoming work and becoming such a critical thing and you know our everyday lives have been disrupted yeah, and what we're trying you, to the things you take for granted getting certain groceries like fresh produce and whatnot because i eat predominantly plant-based diet mm-hmm. and so that, that's been challenging in right. this environment and so it's balancing getting great nutrients and dealing with the covid crisis and so to your question We had to, you know, we made the decision. We had four days of programming. Obviously, we had two days in partnership with Spacecom. You know, we had you guys, which was great. We had Axios. We had Virgin Orbits there. We had Virgin Galactic there. We had ex-astronauts coming. We had uh, defense professionals. We had leadership from the World Economic Forum. And we had like four days of programming. I think it was a, I don't even want to say what we probably spent on the event. Oh, I know. Um, but, but look, the right thing to do, you know, we, we were looking at the situation and, and at the time we didn't have the data we have today. South by still hadn't canceled. We were kind of drafting off them saying, you know, surely the World Health Organization and South by and the city is going to make the right call. That didn't happen for a while. And so we were we just started looking, you know, not just nationally at our news, but we started looking internationally at just what was happening and starting to happen the time in Italy, which has now manifested itself terribly. And and so we just said, look, the best case scenario is we have a terrible event. That's the best case scenario because no one, at the time we had five, over 5,000 people, you know, coming to our little office event during South by, I mean, it's crazy numbers for without us, you know, working on this. And so worst case scenario or best case scenario, we're going to have an event that was not nearly what we think and know it could have been. Worst case scenario, or sorry, best case scenario, worst case scenario, someone on our watch gets sick. And even if they overcome it, they take it home to a loved one and then they get sick and something complications and someone passes away. It was just too much to bear. And so I think we, you know, looking back, we definitely made the right decision. We had a flood of support from our, you know, great panelists and supporters like you guys, and also from a lot of our sponsors and Spacecom, everyone, and then obviously our internal employees and speakers. Everyone was 100% behind us when we announced, which was great. So I'm very, very thankful for just the response that we had both externally and internally, you know, on the decision. And I think just in general, that South by Southwest cancellation was on everyone's minds. You're talking about an internationally known cultural event. 
And it was kind of the benchmark for a lot of other events to sort of cancel. And I'm just glad that the city of Austin showed that leadership. Yeah, it's really too. important. I am too. And, and look, it's a hard decision for sure. And, you know, they, they definitely got it pretty close. Yeah. But we're glad they also made the decision, right? Because who knows what could have been accelerated from that event. So I think they right. agree with you. Well, let's attempt to move on here and try to, you know, I think one reason I was excited to have you on the podcast, not only to talk about South by Southwest, and I just want to say real quick, we are going to regroup on this. Just a, some positive thinking here. Great. I feel like we are going to regroup on this event in some form in the future and do something really cool. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited. Look, this will, like all big things like this, this will pass. I mean, this is, right. this is currently, you know, our challenge and kind of this generation's challenge that we're focusing on. But many generations that have come before have, have dealt with much even more difficult things. And so we will overcome this. I'm, I mean, you know this about me. I'm always maybe almost too optimistic about humanity. Honestly, that's what we need right now. It's too much optimism. I think I think that's what we need. And I practice that because I'm trying to stay positive myself. And, you know, in the space industry here, which, you know, Supercluster covers and and we we have so many partners, like you mentioned, Virgin Orbit, they are all doing incredible things to try and help with this crisis. And the community is really coming together. And I think focusing on some of that positivity will help get us through this crisis. And I just love the community, especially and how they're helping each other and supporting each other. And it's something cool. And I just wanted to shout out all those folks who are doing that. And, you know, this brings me to another question that I wanted to ultimately talk to you about uh, on this podcast, Ben. Is that, and that's about infrastructure and the, having the technologies we need to grapple with the future, whether it's a future filled with crisis or a future filled with you know, massive technological revolution or industrial revolution, what sort of tech infrastructure or technologies do we need to get us past this, you know, this technology hump? Like we don't, we don't have the technology to fight this virus. We don't have proper communications technologies. What are some of these technologies that we need? Well, I think, I think it's a great question. I think probably even an equal and more important question is, is that how has this current landscape changed how we think about technology? Because I, I think, and I've been guilty of this, sometimes, a, a lot of times technology, if you look at technology in general, all technology impacts how people operate their business, operate their day-to-day lives. We've had certain, you know, tectonic shifts in, in technology, even things like social media and Facebook, right? Like, right. 30 years ago, no one thought about that. Um, I think about it a lot today. They check it. I mean, I check it numerous times a day. I'm, I'm active on you know Twitter and, and LinkedIn and, and whatnot, and obviously Instagram. But I think that every technology or idea that we put into the world is something that humans then have to go respond to. I think really interestingly at this point in time, humans are having to look at technology different. And we're now saying, looking at our society and looking at the challenges that we have, I think it's kind of flipped how we look at it versus this is great technology that we need to invent because we think we believe there's a need and we're going to go push that need into the market and and and, and try to find product market fit and, and create new sectors like social media. Right now is a time where it's changing the model. And I think we're changing the model for good and looking at saying, oh my gosh, how could this be a, what technologies do we need today and how it affects our lives, how it affects disaster relief, how it affects infrastructure to your point for the future. And I, and I think a lot of times we get caught up on kind of this love fest in this, or, or even a lust fest with technology, where we're constantly looking for what is the next technology and how can we push it forward versus taking a step back. You know, we, one of the projects that, you know, we've been working on internally at, at Hypergiant, which, you know, people don't realize this. A lot of people love the stuff that we build. A lot of the great innovations we have, in addition to the clients that we service and, and, and some of the software that we build, people love our R&D group. But I think a lot of times people forget that the R in R&D stands for research right, right. development. It doesn't always work. In, in one of the projects that you know we've spent a lot of time over the last year thinking about, uh, we call it a food computer. We called it a robotic agriculture project. We, we, you know, how do we figure out the best way? I mean, you've got these farms and mass locations that are doing really interesting stuff when it comes to robotics and automation for food growth. 
But, you know, right now in a hyper-localized world, if you can't get it there or there's limiting supply, how can you create technologies for hyper-local? You know, before we start, I think before we started the podcast and we we're just catching up, I mentioned that, you know, I eat mostly plant-based. And mm-hmm. so getting fresh food, getting fresh produce right now, you know, getting Cheerios is moderately easy. Getting macaroni right. is moderately easy. I don't want to eat that every day. And right. so I want to eat more plant-based. And so it, it's been it's been a unique challenge for me. And so I went back to our R&D team because, you know, we're not advancing some of the technology that we're working on and that we're going to release it South by around the bioreactor. We're not advancing some of the great work that we're doing with Project Orion because we need optical specialists and teams actually in, in the room. And so one of the projects that I would say would be on was on a slow burn internally was this, you know, food computer robotic agricultural project, you know, looking at autonomous environmental controls, looking at, you know, hyper local harvesting, solar arrays. So, you know, we can have everything green tech and powered off of renewable sources, you know, taking some of our computer vision models and whatnot. And so how could we build these, like in the same way that we've thought about the bioreactor that, you know, 2.0, which we haven't got to release yet is highly modular. You can scale it. So you can have everything from internal systems at an office to an entire warehouse, you know, creating biomass and carbon sequestering. And so how can we take that same modularity concept to a, you know, robotic localized agriculture project? Because if I, I, full disclosure, I don't have a farm and, and I probably should because for a lot of the things I believe in, but I don't. And, and what's been crazy about this is, you know, we, it's, it's even started to spur that, that concept of critical infrastructure and really what's critical to the human in their, their individual lives. We've thought about, you know, should we advance some of the robotic agriculture work that we're doing that we think it could have massive impact, you know, on future deeper space missions could have huge effects for colonization. How could we build a highly efficient modularized robotic and AI system for this? And, and, and now I'm mad that I didn't accelerate it more in the future because I would use it right now. Right. I would have one in my house. And so it would be it would be incredible to have done this earlier, and that was a project that we're very passionate about, and we we're putting work to it. There's a lot. It sounds like an easy project, it's incredibly complicated. It's it's on the level of, of non persistent heads up displays and mm-hmm. and some of the other great work that's coming out of our R and D work, our R and D team. And so you know we've taken this opportunity to really kind of do some self introspection and say what are the things that you know we should focus on from an R&D perspective and how should this crisis change? Because we're not in biosciences. We're not, we're not in medical. We've been somewhat limited to how we can support. So we've done things right. like built some AI models based on looking at different climate change data that's coming out, looking at, you know, is all the reporting accurate? Are we modeling the same thing that we're seeing, at least with the data that we have? at least what we're, the news that we're getting, the, the data we're getting from the news. So we're constantly looking at those types of things just out of rampant curiosity. But, you know, we don't have a manufacturing capabilities yet at Hypergiant where we can go build a thousand ventilators. And so looking at this, we, we, we're doing some 3D printing of some PPE stuff and putting all of our 3D printers to work, which is great. But we've really taken a moment to take a step back and say, what technologies can we implement that could make, you know, hyper-localized work better, that could make the world safer. And so we spent a lot of time with our R&D group having virtual brainstorms around this robotic agriculture project. We've also looked at taking a lot of our work that we've done with Project Orion, with the heat vision and with the computer vision that's built into it saying, could we build sensors that we put at the door of every, and and this kind of gets into the world where, there's there's a whole there's a whole debate that that constantly happens between privacy and a safety, right? So like, right. what is the trade off? I I would argue that most millennials will trade privacy for convenience, and I think we see that time and time again, and especially with ring sales and and products like that. Oh yeah, and, 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 exactly. And so you know, is there a world where you're not tracking the human and you're not doing anything nefarious with computer vision? But is there a world where you know, when you go up to, when you walk into every single door, you know, it has a sensor and a motion sensor and a detection to open the door for you. Can it quickly isolate and look at your eyes, look for the most efficient point to get your temperature, most accurate point to get your temperature, do a temperature read. And then, you know, if you have a temperature, 
maybe it can't tell you what virus you have, but it can at least alert the system to this person is coming in to this office or this Air Force base or a bank or wherever, or a school, and they have a temperature. And so we do know that viruses, that when you have a temperature, you are in most cases more contagious than you right. are when you don't have a temperature. And so it doesn't mean you're not contagious when you have a, I'm not a doctor, so please don't take, this is just data that I have. Right. This is from a technology standpoint. And so that's another internal project that we've started to look at because I think a lot of the stuff that's happened in Singapore has shown us, you know, why I don't agree with every economic and government view they have. I do mm-hmm. think that some of the controls they put on their systems could are helpful. Like they, they do a lot of monitoring and I don't know if, if you can balance the privacy aspect with that. I don't know if that's a bad thing because I think that if someone's going, I don't think anybody intentionally is going to go and at least the vast majority of the population is going to go somewhere right knowing that they're sick and going to infect others. I Once again, I, I'm a hardcore optimist when it comes to humanity. So I, I believe that 99.999% of humans don't want to get other people sick. There are some and, people out there, but for the most part, if you can inform people that they're sick, you know, and, and maybe they just thought they weren't feeling well or retired, that could be really valuable. And so we're looking at some stuff like that, uh, leveraging a lot of the technology that we've you know, and one thing I noticed with this crisis is that we've all seemed to collectively throw medical privacy out of the window, at least temporarily. I feel like during, in most cases for private citizens, especially in the United States, their medical records are a thing of secrecy. And oh, it's a disaster. It, it is, yeah, yeah. I mean, Robin, yeah. it's not just secrecy. It's a disaster. HIPAA and right. all these things. And, and doctors and nurses who are amazing, they're just trying to do their jobs, right? They don't right. want to get sued. They don't want to give the data to the wrong person. But mm-hmm. but just to be really clear, and this may be too personal, before this whole COVID crisis, I got sick. I got sick with the virus. It wasn't COVID. At least they don't think it was COVID. And the doctors were like, hey, we'd love to get some of your old medical records. Chasing down my old medical records, and I'm great and I'm well now, so that's fine. But, but chasing my old medical records, especially in the time of COVID, it was crazy. You know, I... I different offices that I've had different companies, I've, I've mm-hmm. different houses. So I've gotten to doctors in different cities. So they wanted to confirm some stuff with my previous labs. And so that whole process was a disaster. And I'm like, why isn't there, why has someone not built on the blockchain a awesome technology? Right. That would be a perfect technology to keep track of your personal medical. Yeah, and why don't I check it in? Like, like, you know, I called one hospital and they were like, you know, we, we got rid of your records. We only hold them for eight or 10 years. I'm like, well, what if there was something weird in them? I mean, there was, I don't think there was based on, you know, now that I'm well. But at the time, you know, they were trying to figure out like COVID was ramping and people were trying and these great doctors I was working with were like, yeah, you, you definitely have this virus. We Some of your bodies or some of the, the numbers in your various panels were up. And so now it's all normalized, you know, thank God. But at the time, you know, we're trying to get to the bottom of it and we're trying to do it quickly with a concern that there could have been more hospitalization issues than we're currently having in the U.S. And so they were trying to get to the bottom of it really, really quick with this COVID ramp, right? And so in a time of, you know, I think we were probably being overly aggressive, but in that time, getting records was a disaster, you know? And I've got right. great people that I work with that helped me, like my chief of staff was calling people like numerous times and they were like, we can fax you something. So we had to like, Go get an e-fax number set up. Was like, who uses the fax machine? <laughs> That's so, crazy. Oh my god! It's, it's like, why isn't there a system where it's like, you know, I, I get blood work done four times a year. I'm pretty mm-hmm. judicious on health and wellness, and so why is it? I, I keep all these records that I can, but I haven't done that for all the time. Like, why can't I scan in some barcode or some type of marker so that it's mine and I take it with me? So if if I'm overseas, I can just literally plug this little jump drive in and they have all their medic and so they know oh this is he's got yeah. you know here's what his cholesterol is here's what it, blood type he is here's here's all that stuff none of that that, that doesn't exist and it, it, no it's no. crazy you're supposed to manage that on your own somehow like i'll go to the doctor and the doctor will be like oh what's your cholesterol level i don't know yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. But this b- brings me to a bigger question, which I wanted to ask you. We do hear a lot of, you know, a lot about ventilators and the research and going into the medicine and the vaccines and all that. But I grew up in New York City in the early 90s, and everything was about AIDS and HIV prevention. And back then, everything was about testing. 
getting every single person tested, like as many as you can, especially in the larger cities like New York. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on like how we're approaching uh, at least the world or the World Health Organization and our CDC? Are we promoting testing enough? And, and, you know, you talked about reading temperatures and things like that. How can technology, and I'm not putting you on the spot, Ben, because I know you're not going to come up with a test right now to test 350 million people, but is it possible to even do something like that? And when I say testing, we really mean gather data. How do we, te- how do we get the data we need to know that coronavirus is even gone? Yeah, it, it's a it's a great question. I wish, like I said, not a not a doctor, not not a doctor, right? <laughs> but, but we're kind of now be. There's a lot of people getting tested, which is great. But yeah. we're beyond testing. We, we're now in just controlling the situation. We don't know enough about the virus. We don't know enough. There was. I'm, I'm sure you've seen all of the data that I've seen, where you know it only affects these types of populations. Only if you're smoking. Right. Only if you're old. Right. Only if you're pre-existing right. condition. And then you have a 30-year-old athlete lady right. that just dies, right? It only affects men. Oh, it's, yeah. it, and, and now it's and now cats are getting infected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I saw the tiger situation right. in the Bronx. And so it, it doesn't it low mutation rate. It's not jumping to species species. Not mm. true. And so, right. so we, we just this came so fast. And I think that you know, from a testing perspective, there are ways that we can test. There are ways that we can make the system better. I think What's interesting in the process that we're in today is I think I read some article recently, and, and once again, there's a ton of data out there. So I think that we have to get to the other side of this to really look at which data was accurate. And I, unfortunately, in this scenario, because of the speed of which this has moved, we're going to have to do a postmortem on this and look backwards and say, what was the right data? Because right now, we've just been filled with data points that are all over the board. But right. we, we didn't test soon enough. We didn't test fast enough. So now we're just in containment mode. We're in like right. absolute containment mode. And all we know is that the virus lives for a certain, roughly a certain period of time. We know it has a certain transmission rate. And we know that if people don't transmit, eventually everyone that has it will either get over it or not, but they won't transmit to other people. So that's why this whole concept of social distancing, you know, is working. I do think that, you know, for us, there's certain societal things we come out of this. I've always thought it's weird. And I'm a reasonably active extrovert, right? Because I travel, I do a lot of work. But at the same time, I've always thought that the first thing you do when you interact with a stranger is you touch them. Like, I think shaking hands is weird. I've always thought it was weird. I've never (laughs) You know, and I'm then, one of those. Yeah, it's like, and I'm not again. Like, I, I like uh, people I love and know. I, I don't mind hugging them. I'm not like a, I'm not one of those people that doesn't like to be touched. But it's like, it, it's so strange to me that like the first thing we do when we meet a stranger is, it, you know, you look at me, I shake their hands, and it's like mm-hmm. this old school mentality. And so I, I think that that's just a weird thing, right? It's a generally weird thing when you think about it. And and so I, I'm glad that some of these social norms that have been around for a long time that shouldn't be on there. Like now, like when people enter their pin number, when people touch things, to sign, like I've started to be very aware of all the things I just touch all the time, even just at my house. Right. I, I touch too many things. I don't need to touch. I don't need <laughs> response from all of this stuff. And then, you know, when you think about getting gas, I mean, just every component of your life, you, you constantly touch things. And so I think that a lot of social norm changes will come out of this. Number one, number two is I think that people will have to look for, distributed stockpile models, which we just don't have. We've got this like free for all market system. That's terrible. I do think that there's going to have to be advancements in testing and screenings. And I think some of that can be like I suggested earlier, just around temperature. Cause even if you don't know what you have, if you know someone's sick, you can tell them to stay at home. I think people are going to be much more aware, hopefully of their bodies. And I think that we can, will create technologies that will, you know, balance privacy in there, but will at least monitor for health. I mean, so thinking about the future, right? Because I'm always thinking about that and being opportunistic. God forbid something like this happened and we don't know where it came from and it happened on a deep space mission or it happened on the ISS or it happened eventually on lunar or Mars bases. How do you deal with that? (laughs) I mean, Right. Thankfully, we since Supercluster, we just gave an assignment to an incredible pharmaceutical reporter to start looking at diseases in space. And this was before coronavirus. So we're hopefully we can talk about that. 
But Ben, I want to, you have some of the finest technology folks working at Hypergiant, like our chief science officer, Christina Libby. She was doing an interview the other day, which I loved. I forgot the outlet, but her quote was about Hypergiant. We're never just making a tool or a platform. We're making things that change how society operates. Now, this speaks, correct, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but this speaks to infrastructure. Yes. Does it? Yeah, she's great. We were, we were very lucky for the women and men we have at, at Hypergiant. We've done an incredible job of, I think, building a place that people want to work and are not just unafraid, but are encouraged to push the boundaries of science, push the boundaries of policy. We, we talk about things on video chat now, but in meetings, in Slack and, and whatnot, that probably most companies wouldn't feel comfortable talking about. And like, what this societal means for certain different technologies. And it's a pretty open environment, which is awesome. So yeah, she completely nailed that quote. We, when we think about Hypergiant, you know, our biggest goal is we, we focus on the intersection of critical infrastructure, resources, space, and defense. And so that's our, that's our mission, right? Like we want to build and solve challenges for corporations and governments at that intersection. Because we think that you know, I, I've got a spoiler alert. I, I've got a book coming out in the. Ooh. I, I haven't actually told anybody this yet. I mean, there's oh, no. certain people know about it because I've had a great editing team, a great art team. Christine has been really helpful in it. But I've got a book because when we, we talk to certain people about infrastructure, they're like, like a highway. I was like, okay, yeah, that, that's an example of infrastructure. But so is like energy, so is supply chain, so is mm-hmm. shipping and logistics. A lot of robotics and automation are starting to, to take massive places in that governed by AI, right? And so when you think about the challenges for critical infrastructure, when you think about the challenges for defense, when we think about the challenges for space, all these industries have tons of data. They understand the value of data. A lot of them haven't gone through digital transformation. So they surely haven't gone through intelligence transformation. And so I've written a book around, it's, it's a, we're not going to, we're going to just probably just, we're going to do another episode when the book's out. Okay. Well, we're going to give it away. I don't know if it's going to be a thing, but it, I'll send you a copy and you tell me if you think it's interesting, but, but it, it's, about, it's, we call these the elements of civilization. We think that from the oldest time, like when people were just sailing the seas, they relied on the stars. They had the means for defense and the defense was to defend not necessarily always people, but the critical infrastructure and resources of a land body or, or government. Right. And so, and, and we think that persists today. And we think that these tenants of the elements of civilization will be really important in the future for you know, long-term colonization of other planets in this system, and then eventually, hopefully, other star systems, depending on where we go as humanity. And so, for us, when we think about these things, we we are constantly like when, when we invest our time in, in research in R and D. Some of the technology that we've built in computer vision has led to numerous software products that we're building, also numerous helmet displays. Some that are using active systems, and some that are using AR versus VR, and some that are using passive systems. And so some of the technologies, as I mentioned now, we're looking at how do we apply this to hospitals, to buildings, and and to secure locations to use these technologies for temperature reading. Yet at the same time, we're also using them for situational awareness for first responders or for military and and even non-persistent heads of displays with astronauts. And so when we think about technology and we strip away the use case and we strip away the necessary, the end work product. And we look at what are the core components of it. You know, what Christina was really alluding to with that is that we try to build technologies that are ubiquitous, where we can use them in a lot of different ways that could apply to many different use cases and have societal impact on those, right? And so if we build the, some of the greatest technologies that will go into a helmet that, you know, for a future soldier or for an astronaut or for telemedicine, those have massive impacts, but they're all on the same underlying technology. So we're never just thinking about building a platform that solves X. I think there's a lot of amazing women and men that are doing that. They build Salesforce, like Salesforce is great. They have a platform for CRM. We use it. Hopefully lots of people use a great platform, not an investor. I don't know to say Salesforce stock probably should, but still they, they've solved that. I think there's great companies doing that. We just look at the world a little different, right? And so sometimes that resonates with people in press and investors. Sometimes it doesn't, but we look at more of these fundamental technologies that then can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. And so it's a Lego block mentality to technology and how it affects and interacts with society versus building a technology that's super tied into just solving one use case. Now, let's talk about machine learning and AI. 
Well, I know they're not the same thing because you explained it the last time we tried to tape this podcast that we're not at that level of AI that we want to be at. But what is your perspective on where we are in developing that technology and how critical is machine learning becoming to our larger scale science projects? I know exoplanet research, SETI research, and you know, I know they're using machine learning to even fight coronavirus now. But yeah, I mean, what, what's your perspective on where we are in that development? AI gets a weird rap. It really does. It, it cert- depends on who you ask. Everyone has an emotional response to it. At times, you've heard, I will not call out, you know, <laughs> successful technologists, but you have you have people that are like, it's going to kill us all. You have people that are like, right. fine. You have people, you know, like in the Texas world that are like, it's going to take all of our jobs. And so... Uh, <laughs> You, you have a lot of different opinions about it. And I don't think they're all necessarily right. And I don't think they're all necessarily wrong. It's really what we as humans choose to do, where we choose to put policies in place, where we choose to put governance in place. And so I think right now the world's seeing there's a lot of value to AI. AI is one of those, we live in a world right now where like everybody wants AI and everyone's excited about AI. No one really knows what AI is, at least the general People that we, we that's can. I can I can say that, that I personally don't people. understand it. Yeah, and, but then people also don't trust some of the original people that got them excited about AI in the first place. So it's just this weird loop. It's like we need AI, we love AI. We don't know what AI is, but we definitely need it. And we don't trust the some of these original companies that told us we needed AI in the first place. They, they got this right. rolling. So it's a weird scenario. I, I do think that we're in a place where we're beyond AI winters. I don't think that we are at a place where we're at artificial general intelligence or artificial, you know, super intelligence, which is what everyone's super scared of, which I, I do think that, you know, there's a path to that. Where I fall on it, though, is I, I think that we're starting to demystify AI and we're starting to break out the the truth of AI into the components like computer vision, like neural nets, like deep learning, like machine learning, like natural language processing. People are starting to understand the components, like going back to that Lego model, people are starting to understand the different blocks. And maybe this block's important for me, but maybe these other blocks. You don't need a neural net or deep learning to do predictive, you know, it, analytics on a website, right? You, you just don't need that, right? That's a nuclear weapon to, you know, kill an ant. And so they, I think there, there's a better general education that's starting to come around the actual words, you know, because words matter. And I think there's a point right now where people are starting to understand what all these words are and what they mean and how they could apply to various use cases. I do think that certain rises of technology like machine learning right now in the age of COVID-19 has been helpful because people have realized, wow, we can take a lot of data and we can have machines process this data faster than we've ever done it. And they can get to inferences that then humans can make decisions based on, right? And so that, that's the world that I live in. You know, I, I, before all of this, I was at MIT for a couple of days I've got some various stuff that I'm working on up there. And I had this great conversation in the Quest group, which is kind of leading some of the best thought leadership out there around artificial intelligence at MIT in the world. One of the directors of it and I were talking is he asked me where I fell on the, where humanity was on the scale of artificial general intelligence. Because there's mm-hmm. kind of two ways of two ways of thought. There's wave one, which is, we have all the technology, we're there, we got to be scared of it, and we just we just have to put the compute power and everything to do it. I'm not in that camp. I'm in the camp that, yeah, we could get there. I'm in the other camp, which I think that they at MIT agreed with me on, which is there's still fundamental components to get to artificial general intelligence. Like One of the things that I don't think computers do well is they're not curious. We are right. curious. So someone can tell you how you know the solar system works or how a combustion engine works, or even things like, you know, gravity or how the pyramids were built. And there's general belief and general knowledge. And But, but then there's always someone that swims against the current, right? And says, but is that right? Or do we know enough about it? I mean, we're constantly looking with quantum technologies and with quantum theory and with string theory. We're constantly evolving our scientific knowledge of the universe. You know, there's the way... People still don't know a lot of these big fundamental issues. Like people still don't really know how gravity works. Like, I mean, they will tell you, people will say, oh yeah, gravity works like this. But when you really get into it, people actually kind of still don't understand it. Maybe there's someone out there, but the general population doesn't understand it. And and there's a lot of these unknowns that we're constantly, you know, we're finding new elements that we didn't even think were possible to exist in nature that look artificial and created. And so there's so many questions that we're constantly, we're kind of at this like, 
you know, explosion of knowledge that we have to use systems like machine learning in order to capture, collect, and utilize that knowledge. So I think that there's kind of this general, you know, hopefully understanding of what these words mean. I think there's a general understanding of how they can start to be used in a lot of use cases. Like my, my grandmother now knows really what AI is. And so that's, that's a huge step function forward for technology in the world. And, and I still think that there's things like, you know, human curiosity, human creativity that we haven't figured out how to replicate. And until we replicate those things, we won't get to artificial general intelligence because a computer system, when it gets to a percentage of probability that it, it knows the answer is whatever you have to get to, to know that an answer is most likely positive, it, it accepts that answer, right? And, and so even if a billion out of a billion times the answer is yes, with humans sometimes says, I don't know if the answer is yes. And even if they have no rational reason, they can still question it. And I think there's been these, these uh, incredible movements in, in society when people question what is seen as the norm. And, and that's not replicatable yet. Right. And, and that so, ultimately goes back to curiosity, like you said. Yeah, I think, I think curiosity and creativity. I mean, you can, people argue with me and they have argued with me, well, a computer can paint something. I was like, but why do they paint it? They paint it right. because you gave it some algorithm that gave it randomness. It doesn't actually have like, it doesn't have an emotional scar from a breakup or from like right. a loss of life that made it paint this dark painting. Like it just didn't, it just, you gave it random, you gave it the ability to paint random and gave it some color theory. And you assume that, that, that it, it was creative. That's not creative. That's production. Right. And so, right. yeah. So I think curiosity and creativity are these things that we have to, if we're ever going to get to this, like futuristic, you know, Wayland Corp style of <laughs> Android, the only way you're going to get there is if we can replicate curiosity and we can replicate creativity. And right now, I haven't seen anything to suggest that we can. It's funny you brought up Wayland or Wayland Utani, the corporation from Aliens that created the David robot and the robot that killed everyone and Alien too. But my knowledge growing up of AI has changed and been like transformed by Hollywood. And, you know, you start with Terminator and The Matrix and now that I work in this field, I'm learning a lot more about AI. And a lot of my close friends are AI kind of reporters. They say the same thing. They're like, the myth has far exceeded the reality on this one. And we have a lot more to, to develop. One of my friends said something along the lines of, we have no idea how to make a soul for a machine. And it's, it, and it's not exactly what you said, Ben, but it goes to the having inspiration and having the reasoning to do something or the reason to create. And that seems to be, for me now, is how I view AI. It's like, we're not there yet. It's a beyond the range. Yeah, but it's very interesting. I do believe in, you know, if there's a possibility, I think humans will get there, right, over time. Mm -hmm. But but we're definitely much further. I mean, I, I don't think we're in a world where we're building, you know, I mean, a lot of the work that we do in our services division and space age solutions under Hypergiant is focused on system integration of AI systems. I mean, right. if they're so sentient, then we shouldn't have any of those people because they should just connect systems to systems and figure out how these and not have to build middleware, right? Right, right, right. Great software engineers building middleware for a reason. I recently and a couple other supercluster team members, we're getting the Hypergiant's new newsletter. It's called Does Not Compute. <laughs> I love it. We thought that was fitting. For yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, newsletter. Yeah, and uh, it's, it, I love the theme. And just like going off of that, I wanted to talk to you about technologies being developed elsewhere that inspire you and inspire Hypergiant. And uh, you don't have to get super specific if you don't want to, but what's out? What's going on out there in the world? And it, you know, and I know you're a big space fan as I am, and maybe there's something in that sector that interests you personally. But what what's out there? that really gets you like, oh, that's really interesting. That's really bleeding edge. You know, I'm always curious to know what the technology leaders are seeing and, and being inspired by. No, it's, it's a great question. I think that for me lately in the last year, I'm going back to this kind of building block model. I've been inspired by, you know, for a long time, I was inspired by Hollywood, right? You, you, mm -hmm. I see stuff in, you know, Altered Carbon or I see stuff in an Aliens movie or I see stuff in whatever movie. And, and I'm like, why doesn't that exist? Why? That should exist. We have the means to, to make it exist. And so that's always so science fiction has been a massive kind of the art of the possible and saying, like, why doesn't an Iron Man helmet exist today? 
why right. does it, and the technology exists. Like we, we can do these things right now. Some of it, you know, like the David robot, like we can't do all these things yet, but there's a lot of stuff we can do. And so that's been a kind of, I would say an overarching theme in my entire life that I've been inspired by. But, but lately there's been technologies that I would argue are low tech. Like some of the, like one of the things I was most inspired by recently was there's a lady named Shneel Malik out of London who grew up in Delhi and I'm insanely inspired by her. And she had a problem around pollution where she grew up in that pollution would, would stick to the sides of buildings. And then when it would rain, all that would get flushed off of buildings and all of the pollution in the air was on buildings. It would then get flushed into river systems and drinking water systems. Right. And so she's developed a technology that's incredibly low tech. They're tiles. She's bioengineered these tiles that you can 3D print that are designed in the best way to collect runoff water and to collect condensation and, and to grow algae. So she's, she can very cost effectively build an entire side of a building with these tiles. So, so it, it works at any form factor. By the way, they're beautiful. Awesome. Or someone sends you a link on it because it, it, they're, they're incredible. And you should definitely talk to her because the idea also, not just for society now, is that if you could build tiles where the sides of every building are beautiful and green, they're growing algae. They're doing carbon sequestering. They're they're constantly recycling CO2 to O2. They're constantly taking water and pollution and acting as a natural filter of what runs off the building. And they're beautiful and they're cheap. That's incredible. And that's incredible technology, even if it doesn't, it, you know, it may not have the greatest, you know, user interface and have, you know, night vision and, and it, it's not the predator helmet, but it's a different <laughs> technology. And that's a technology where if you have a lunar base, Mars base, whatever, you could go 3D print these tiles there. You don't have to take them with you. You could 3D print these tiles. You could put these tiles up and start using, you know, low tech solutions to, for, for high tech means. Another project that I've been watching closely is that it's a nonprofit out of, and, and I'm not affiliated with either one of these. I just felt the need to say that, but I'm inspired by them. And I haven't talked to them yet is they, I think it's called like Nemo's garden or something. And they're looking at growing food sources underwater in the ocean using kind of these domes. And it's super interesting. And I'm like, I remember them from Kickstarter. This was a big Kickstarter project. I remember super fascinated with these guys that are doing this as a nonprofit off the coast of Italy. And and I'm just, you know, you can, so there's like all these really interesting stats, like some of the most temperate zones of, of the planet are, you know, between 30 and 60 feet of water underwater. And so like, it's like the most stable place. So like, it makes sense with climate change. A lot of the stuff that's that's happening in the world is going to continue to get worse for a while until we get a handle on it. And so, growing cycles are going to change for for produce. And, and so, where you had seasonality, where you could grow for maybe six months, you're going to be able to grow for four months. And so, that's going to change output. And so, thinking about these systems around how they could affect Earth and how you could build technologies to make them even more efficient. And then think about how you then go apply that to space and to our future as an interplanetary species, I think I think it's really interesting. And so I, I've been really fascinated with these technologies that are seemingly low tech. It's just really smart women and men solving problems, but the implication for the problem for their unique village or for lo- hyper-localization could be massively impactful for not just the world, but even for space. And so you know, I, I've had this weird balance of like the sci-fi stuff that I'm always fascinated with. And then these stories and technologies that are lower tech, at least seeming lower tech, but have massive potential impact. I'm happy to hear that movies inspire you. Uh, I'm a person who most of my education is from Hollywood. So I appreciate hearing that. And it's a constant state of inspiration for us at Supercluster as well. And one thing I want, I thought that was a good segue to talk about UFOs because <laughs> it's been a big super cluster. For me lately. Yeah. <laughs> super had, cluster. Had, we love I've aliens. Had, we I've believe in of, aliens. I've had a lot of people <laughs> paying me about aliens lately. <laughs> so give us the quick, I know that uh, Hypergiant had some sort of project that was reported on recently. I'm not going to give it away, but Ben, maybe you could give us the short of it and maybe we'll do an entire podcast about it when there's an update on the project later on. But give us a short of it. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you know, I love space and we have a whole space division that's doing satellite launches and deployments and constellation. We have constellation management software. We have mm-hmm. computer, We have some pretty interesting, another thing we got to talk about in the future, you know, I, I'm a big believer that I don't always talk about stuff. You know, this is the first I've ever talked about the robotic 
agriculture project. This is the first I've talked about a lot of things here, but I, I don't often, I, I try to be very careful about not getting too ahead of our skis because right. like I said, I'm a big believer with R&D. A lot of it's just research. It'll never go anywhere. I don't want to be in the, the category of, of technologists that get too excited about something. They talk about it, then it's not possible because what we're building a lot of times at Hypergiant is so incredible. It almost seems impossible enough. So we, we have enough things that we built that are crazy enough that we can talk about. We don't need to talk about the fringe stuff that, that isn't. One of the things though, that we've, that we've realized when it comes to UAPs is if you look at critical infrastructure, space and defense, UAPs kind of fit into that. And so mm-hmm. you, know, you I, I love that the world had such a stigma, stigma with UFOs that they've rebranded it UAP. The UAP, yeah. It, it's the same thing. It's just, they, for some reason, UAPs aren't necessarily affiliated with, with aliens. And so, at least at this point. And so our belief is that the U.S. government, which we work closely with, and we're not working on anything weird like this, but the U.S. government and, and many other people have come out, you know, and established you know, like the New York Times and the Washington Post and, you know, these these tenets of, that I believe in, in, you know, journalists who have high degrees of journalistic integrity have come out and said, we don't know what these are. They definitely right. exist. Here's videos. And, and so, you know, whether they're aliens, whether they're our internal technologies, whether they are our adversarial technologies, in two of the three of those scenarios, we kind of need to know what they are. If there are our technologies from a U.S. perspective, I don't know if we need to know what they are. I get to work on some pretty advanced technologies that I never even ever get to talk about. And some of the stuff that has been reported in some of the videos that have been seen, there's no way some of the, we, we are at the point. Wait, yeah, it, there's a lot of things that defy the laws of physics. And, yeah, it's, it's, I, it's, you know, and it's warrants looking into it, it, at the very it, least. We're, we're a very, you know, we, we talked about curiosity and creativity earlier. And so... We're a very curious company. We're, we love to explore the unknown. We work on some R&D that never works and we never talk about it. And then we have these step function moments where we get to talk about stuff that we're, that once it works and we're confident in, in our strategy on it, we can talk about it like Bioreactor and Project Orion and other stuff. And so, but ultimately, you know, this is an area where I believe that machine learning and AI technologies can help answer some of these questions. I don't want to put an answer for, we're not trying to solve for alien. We're not trying to solve for time travelers. We're not trying to solve for, you know, adversarial, super advanced technologies. We're just trying to give people tools. And so we have this concept that we batted around with internally is, you know, we're, we're launching other people's constellations. We're also launching some of our own constellations using the infrastructure that we built, which is, which is really exciting for us. We're leveraging AI on all of that, all of the imaging and data. And then we have other tools like our a disaster mapping system. We've got other tools around, you know, building neural nets for plane identification and aircraft identification that we're working with certain branches of the government on. So we've got a lot of these te- these tools that, that solve uses. So you'll see this theme with us at Hypergiant that, you know, as I mentioned, when we were talking about Christina's quote, and as I mentioned, when we we're talking about kind of the curiosity and creativity is we build these Lego blocks, right? And so we were like, just because we don't have a whole group that, you know, or division that's focused on, you know, solving the UAP issue. I think there's a lot of people out there doing it, but we have a lot of technology that I think a lot of people that are curious about could use. And so we had this concept of building a platform, which we were going to announce more at South by, but didn't, that we're calling CONTACT, which, stand, which stands for Contextually Organized Non-Terrestrial Active Capture Tool. We just came up with what we thought was the right acronym. <laughs> that was a good acronym. Yeah. And, and so it, it's essentially a platform to analyze and understand the data. And so, you know, we've got a tool that we've, we've built some really cool technology around a PDF ingestion and then using NLP to fill in the blanks. We, not not for UAPs, but a UAP or, or or Freedom of Information Act type deals. But but turns out it works really well on PDFs that have been released that are torn up and scratched and have markings on them. And so it's just using computer vision and machine learning NLP to essentially take all that text, put it in into take all that take those images, put them into text, and then and then with a percentage of likelihood give a fill in the blank on, on what the redactives could be. Right. right. And so pretty cool. Right. Like we, we built it, we built it for technology that we're working on for a, a non-related, you know, for a non-UAP government project. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, if we gave that to, you know, we, we don't have an archive of everything that's come out as it relates to, you know, 
old school Project Blue Book to, you know, all this new wave of data out of the Freedom of Information Act. We're not going to go through all that. But if someone's really passionate about it and we've got AI tools that will make their lives better and it could lead to really interesting advancements, we should give them those tools. So one of the things that we've done is we've, we've been cataloging all of these, you know, AI models and Lego blocks that we've built for all these technologies, as I mentioned earlier, with kind of computer vision models that we built and how they could do everything from, you know, virus detection to uh, heads of displays for astronauts. And so those taking those Lego blocks and putting them into interfaces and releasing that, those technologies and continuing to give those technologies to the population that really cares about this so that someone can solve these problems or answer some of these questions, we think is really interesting, right? It goes back to the core of who we are as a company. And so it's something, you know, we're not going out there building quote unquote alien detecting software. We're taking a lot of really powerful technologies that we've built putting them in interfaces and putting them in a, a suite of tools that will continue to update that we will give to the population so that they can use. And, and I think that's a, a testament to kind of how we think about these types of problems. We don't have to be the one that solves this. We don't have to be the one that solves climate change. But if we can build technologies that help and also help others and also inspires others, then it's a win. And that's just how we look, I think, at technology and kind of our place in the world through technology. And, you know, that just goes to adding to the infrastructure for us to have the ability to do these things, especially look at UFOs. And, yeah, it's, and, uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's yeah. so weirdly fascinating. So I will tell you that I don't know where I stand on it, but there's definitely weird stuff that doesn't make sense and it merits exploration. So we should explore it because exploration is, is like creativity and curiosity. It's a tenet of humanity. Ben, I wanted to connect something because you mentioned earlier that, so this is true that UFO has a stigma on it and they changed it to UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon or unidentified aerial threats. I have heard both used, but the individual who lobbied the, lobbied the military and government for over a decade to change it was named Stephen Bassett. And he's one of the sole UFO, quote unquote, UFO lobbyists in history. He was an actor in Hollywood who was in the film Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who gets killed by the Predator. That is the weirdest anecdote that I know, and I wanted to share it with everyone here. <laughs> That's awesome. It goes back yeah. to Hollywood. Hollywood <laughs> right? in imagination can draw. I mean, look at it. That is so impactful for him. He's like, I have to go to Bobby Hollywood. Right, exactly. I wanted to end this podcast on uh, something we talked about before we hit record was how Hypergiant, when you and I talked about, you know, Supercluster, we built Supercluster to operate remotely because we're always in LA or DC or Cape Canaveral or at headquarters in New York City. Our team is global and we're very proud of that. And we've come up with such a streamlined way of working together just remotely, even before this crisis. So it was a pretty smooth transition for us thankfully. But Ben, tell me about Hypergiant. How are you guys doing? How, how is everything? How, you know, are you guys running normally? Like what's going on? No, it's a great question. A lot of what we do is software. And, and so that's running really well. Some of the R and D efforts that require physical location of teams has been slowed, but it's also given us an opportunity to look back at our values. Right. And so I think times where we can really do some soul searching and introspection to say, what are our values? Are we building the technologies that we need or that we care about, or are we building the technology that the world lives and needs? And so that's this is like raise the robotic agriculture stuff that we're now really focused on. And so it's, it's really kind of helped shape that. I, I want to give great credit to both my CTO and my VP of Hype and Culture. They've both been incredible. Our, our CTO has built a ton of infrastructure for us because we're a company that has multiple divisions, has multiple PLs, has, you know, we, we do a combination of building technology and also buying technology, buying full companies. We're set up for rapid scale. You know, we've grown in two years, we've grown to, you know, over 230 people. And, and, and so with that, we, we have a lot of infrastructure set up. So we've done a great job of that. And then and then Sean's done a great job of ensuring that no one feels lonely to virtual game nights, to virtual happy hours. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. And so, I mean, we've got, we've got tea time. Some of the executives like Christine and others hold office hours, just like a professor. Like we have, we have ongoing, we we have a couple of these rooms that are constantly set up 
with Zoom that we pay for that people can just jump in. And if you want to work and be mute and just see other humans. So I think we've done a really good job, both culturally and technologically dealing with this scenario. It is a little bit of business as usual for us. You know, there's some of the stuff that's been slowed down for on, at our R&D division, but that's only one group within the organization. But like I said, it really gives us the opportunity to challenge what our values are. And, and, and I think that it's been really interesting because we, we're set up the right way structurally to really push the company forward in this time. So we're very, very lucky that our teams are, are set up this way. It sounds like you built a company to operate remotely, which is great. And I think that, do you think we'll ever go back to the way, I mean, just in how we're working? And I know we talked earlier about just being sick and how that will, will change how many people still go to work if they're sick or not. That will change. But do you think companies should stop, or not stop, but like maybe focus on not having people gather at a certain location. And, and just from a business perspective, I feel like real estate is the worst overhead for a lot of these companies. I mean, our, our, I mean we've got several offices. It's really expensive. So we, we actually don't have offices for humans in terms of you have like the Ben Lamb's personal office in this. So we have a pretty collaborative scenario. All of the offices, quote unquote, are conference rooms that you can book in and out. And then we have phone booths and other things for calls. And then we have a pretty open floor plan. And so this was, I wish I could tell you that we had a crystal ball and we could have, if we had a crystal ball, we would have probably helped more. But uh, I think apparently Bill Gates had a crystal ball and no one listened to him. So Yeah, I know. That wouldn't have, yeah, exactly. It wouldn't have helped. Would have helped if, if we had Sharing a- that TED Talk now doesn't do anyone any favors. Yeah. <laughs> right. Why isn't he in charge? And so, so, but one of the things that we did, uh, just because we have so many people we're growing so fast, we people that work on different things, we, so many people at the company travel so much. And so we don't, we have a couple of policies just so you don't have offices. We just have conference rooms, but yeah. our offices like in, in Austin, Dallas, Houston, it's tight when everyone's in there. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's not by design. That was just based on how fast we grew. Honestly, right. I think companies will move to hub like models where, I mean, that we were in the process of expanding our Dallas office when all this hit. And we mm-hmm. thought, do we really need to do this? And right. do we, or do we want to do we want to have a smaller space that's super kick ass that has all of the same infrastructure that our current office space has, but we just make it better. But we don't make it that much bigger. And, and we just make a policy where, you know, not everyone needs to be in the office all of the time. And, right. if, you know, and maybe we have remote you know, maybe these teams uh, work remote on Thursdays. Maybe these teams work remote on Mondays. And so, I think that our our perspective is we are we are at we are actively thinking about how we can change our model in terms of having a great space for people to collaborate in, but not making it required. And so, we don't have to have a space for a hundred people in one of these cities. We can have a space for forty people in the city. Right. And so, and then when we have our big events, a lot of times we rent out Alamo draft houses and now we rent out several Alamo draft houses and we'll do these, like we do kind of these big remote all hands meetings twice a year anyway. And so it's one of my favorite places. Yeah. And we're we're not doing them in the office now. We're doing them off site. And so I don't know if we need to have everyone on site and, you know, this is proving that I think this, that model could be helpful. Yeah. And I guess we'll find out. I mean, when we're in the wake of this crisis, but Ben, thank you so much for taking the time. I know that we're both basically working remotely. I'm in my girlfriend's closet right now taping this podcast, but I'm really happy to have you on again. And thank you for retaping this pod. And I hope that we can find ways to collaborate in the future um, on different panels. And, you know, obviously we're going to continue reporting on Hypergiant because Supercluster, you know, we're one of those organizations that we want to tell these stories of incredible technologies and different ways of thinking and different kinds of people who are pushing technology like yourself, Ben. So thank you so much. And I hope to have your chief technology officer on the podcast at some point to talk about stuff in the future and continuing the conversation about Hypergiant. I know you and I talked a little bit about our current situation and everyone's situation. So Thank you for being on. Good luck with everything. And I hope that you are safe and healthy. Yeah, same, same to you. I'm, as you know, we're huge fans of you guys and what you're doing. And, you know, we listen to the podcast and we read the articles. So thank you for having us as well. Thank you, Ben. 